Hello, I'm Jessica Powers. And I'm James Saunders. This week we're talking about service. No, not of the delicious restaurant meals and glasses of wine that we're eagerly anticipating from the 12th of April, but of process in civil procedure. A far less appetising discussion. It never ceases to amaze us just how many cases there are each year dealing with service issues. Despite incredibly prescriptive rules set out in CPR Part 6, defective service is the gift that just keeps on giving. To do our bit to lessen the burden on the court service, we thought it would be helpful to review the basics, starting with how, where and when to serve civil proceedings. We'll also look at trickier issues such as how limitation issues impact on service, discontinuance of proceedings and service issues in specialist proceedings such as insolvency, probate claims and claims against dissolved companies. It may seem too obvious to even need explaining, but the three purposes of service of a claim form were noted in Hoddernot and Persimmon Holmes Wessex Limited, namely 1. Notifying the defendant that the claimant has commenced formal litigation and to inform the defendant of the nature of the claim. 2. Enabling the defendant to participate in the proceedings and have some say in the way that they are prosecuted. And 3. Enabling the court to control the litigation process. The importance of service cannot be understated. As was explained by Lord Green in Craig and Cancine, it is beyond question that the failure to serve process where service of process is required is a failure which goes to the root of our conceptions of the proper procedure in litigation. The rules as to service of claim forms are, of course, set out in CPR Part 6 and 7. The service rules obviously differ depending on whether the claim form is being served within or outside of the jurisdiction, but given the time constraints of this podcast, we'll be focusing on service within the jurisdiction. CPR Rule 6.3 specifies a number of methods of service of the claim form, including personal service, post and electronic service. Electronic service deserves a bit of special attention as the provisions are frequently misapplied. Service by electronic means must be in accordance with Practice Direction 6A, paragraph 4.1, and is only permitted if the party who is to be served or the solicitor acting for them has previously indicated in writing to the party serving that the party to be served or the solicitor is willing to accept service by fax or other electronic means, and they must also have indicated the fax number, email address or other electronic identification to which proceedings are to be sent. That requirement is satisfied if a solicitor's writing paper includes a fax number or an email address and confirmation that that email address in particular may be used for service, or if a fax number, email address or electronic identification is set out on a statement of case or response to a claim filed at court. Before service is effected, the serving party must first ask the receiving party whether there are any limitations on their agreement to accept service electronically, for example, as to format or the size of attachments. Whilst we're on electronic service, a brief word about service by social media and messaging services, in particular WhatsApp. It is becoming more and more common for the court to permit service of urgent injunction orders, particularly freezing orders, by WhatsApp. However, in Gray and Hurley, the claim form itself was served by WhatsApp pursuant to an order for alternative service made by the court. Such an order will be required, if that's the chosen method, as the mere inclusion of a mobile phone number in a statement of case, for example, is not going to be sufficient to amount to an indication of a willingness to be served by WhatsApp or similar. Having dealt then with the how, the next issue is where to serve claim forms. If the defendant gives an address at which they may be served before service of the claim form, that address can be used provided that the defendant resides or carries on a business from that address. 
Assuming that there is no requirement to effect personal service, a claimant must serve on a defendant's solicitor in the jurisdiction in two circumstances. The first is that the defendant has given the solicitor's business address in writing as the address at which the defendant may be served with the claim form. Or, secondly, a solicitor acting for the defendant has notified the claimant in writing that they are instructed to accept service. There are a couple of key points which arise from CPR Rule 6.7 as to service on a solicitor. Firstly, the requirement to serve on solicitors if one of the conditions that James has just set out is satisfied is mandatory. Secondly, it isn't safe to assume that a claim form can be served on solicitors simply because they are acting for a defendant, even in a case where the claimant or their solicitors has been corresponding with the defendant's solicitors for years pre-action. Finally, companies and limited liability partnerships can still be served by any of the methods permitted under the Companies Act 2006, in addition to those set out in Part 6 of the CPR. In any other case, CPR Rule 6.9 contains a table specifying where particular defendants can be served. I will just highlight Rule 6.93, which can often be overlooked. That subrule makes clear that if the claimant has reason to believe that the defendant no longer resides or carries on business from an address at which the claimant intends to serve, then the claimant must take reasonable steps to ascertain the address of the defendant's current residence or place of business. If the claimant then discovers the current address, the claim form must be served there. But if the claimant cannot locate the defendant, there are two options, either an application for service at an alternative place or by an alternative method, or as a last resort, service at the defendant's usual or last known address. Applications to serve by an alternative method or at an alternative place are governed by CPR Rule 6.15. This rule is also relied upon by claimants who discover that they have messed up service of the claim form and seek to rectify. Helpfully, the Supreme Court confirmed in Abela and Badarani that such applications can be made retrospectively. However, there are a host of cases where retrospective applications which have been made to cure defective service have failed, and we therefore strongly recommend getting service right in the first place, rather than hoping that CPR Rule 6.15 will come to your aid. Taking a slight detour into personal insolvency, Schedule 4 of the Insolvency Rules 2016 confirms that bankruptcy petitions are treated like claim forms when it comes to service. Applications for retrospective validation of the service of a petition where personal service has not been possible are far from unusual. In Ardawa and Upal, Mr Justice Roth concluded that there was no power under the Insolvency Rules 1986 to retrospectively authorise substituted service of a bankruptcy petition. That was largely because the 1986 rules entirely disapplied Part 6 of the CPR. Last year, Mr Justice Fancourt revisited Ardawa in the case of Ewan Cowley. In what were admittedly obiter comments, Mr Justice Fancourt noted that the substantive part of the reasoning in Ardawa derived from the then-current version of the Insolvency Practice Direction and the express exclusion of CPR Part 6. The debtor in you accepted that part six of the CPR was included in the cross-border regime which the court was considering in that case, and that retrospective authorisation was therefore available. The final question that we promised to address at the start of this podcast was when claim forms have to be served. CPR Rule 7.5 provides that where a claim form is served within the jurisdiction, the claimant must complete the step required in relation to the particular method of service chosen before 12 o'clock midnight on the calendar day four months after the date of issue of the claim form. So, for example, in the case of service by post, 
the claim form must be posted before midnight on the last day of the four-month period. Now seems like an appropriate moment to highlight the so-called service trap, which is set by CPR Part 7. Rule 7.5 gives a four-month period in which to serve the claim form. CPR Rule 7.41b permits service of the particulars of claim within 14 days after service of the claim form. However, Rule 7.42 clearly states that the particulars of claim must be served on the defendant no later than the latest time for serving a claim form. The trap is set because if, for example, a claim form has to be served by the 31st of March 2021, and it is in fact served on the 26th of March 2021, the claimant does not have 14 days thereafter within which to serve the particulars of claim. Interestingly, CPR Rule 7.5 says nothing about the time for service of a claim form, referring instead to the time for taking the relevant step. Regard must then be had to the deeming provisions set out in Rule 6.14. Service of a claim form takes place on the second business day after completion of the relevant step. The end of that second business day would therefore logically be the deadline for service of the particulars of claim. It is possible to obtain an extension of time for service of a claim form, either prospectively before the deadline for service passes or retrospectively. However, if an application is made retrospectively, an extension will only be granted if either the court has failed to serve the claim form or the claimant has taken all reasonable steps to comply with CPR Rule 7.5 but has not been able to do so. And in both cases, the claimant must act promptly in making the application for an extension of time. Such applications become even harder where limitation has expired post-issue. In the case of Cecil and Byatt, the court confirmed that limitation is a key consideration for the following reasons. Proceedings are commenced when issued, not when they are served. Time therefore stops running on issue. However, a defendant has no notice of the proceedings or the nature of the claim until they are served. The period between issue and service is therefore a quasi-extension of the limitation period during which the claimant is not obliged to do anything to bring the proceedings formally to the defendant's attention. The policy justification for limitation periods is to prevent the spectre of proceedings hanging over a defendant and to encourage efficient prosecution of those proceedings. Those justifications are undermined by unjustified extensions of time for service of a claim form. Now, for the last few years, a few members of New Square Chamber's insolvency team have been trying to persuade the courts that those principles applied equally to insolvency applications, with mixed success. However, thankfully, the Court of Appeal confirmed last year in Re-Eyed that an insolvency application is analogous to a claim form when it comes to extending time for service after the expiry of the limitation period. The key difference between the two, of course, is that the time limit for service of an insolvency application is calculated backwards from the date of the first hearing by operation of the Insolvency Rules 2016, such that there isn't a standard fixed period like the four-month period in the case of service of a claim form. So as noted by Lord Justice Arnold in the judgment in Riyadh, it may therefore be easier to persuade the court to grant an extension of time for service of an insolvency application even where limitation has expired, if the initial period for service, calculated back from the date of the first hearing, is less than four months. The expiry of limitation post-issue generally arises in cases where claim forms have been issued protectively. Particulars of claim may not be ready and more evidence may need to be gathered, but issuing ensures that the defendant cannot rely on a limitation defence. What if, though, the proposed claimant or defendant is a company which has been dissolved, either following the conclusion of an insolvency process or an administrative strike-off? 
Can a protective claim be issued before the company has been restored to the register? The answer is found in section 1032 of the Companies Act 2006, which enables the court to make such directions as seem just. Under that section, the court can extend limitation periods in the case of a dissolved company. The court will consider two things. Firstly, if the company would have commenced the relevant proceedings within the limitation period if it had not been dissolved. And secondly, whether it would be just to provide that opportunity by a limitation direction. In the case of Jodrell and Peaktone, the Court of Appeal confirmed that the effect of Section 1032 is to validate an action purportedly commenced by or against a company during the period of its dissolution. That particular case was concerned with a claim issued against a company which was dissolved when proceedings were commenced, but reference was also made to the earlier case of Tymon and Craven. In Tymon, the Court held that although the proceedings were a nullity when initiated, Because of the statutory fiction created by section 1032, the proceedings were valid and alive by the time that they came before the judge for consideration, because the dissolved company had been restored. So, if a dissolved company has a potential claim, those seeking to pursue it, and who would have had the power to act on behalf of the company were it not for its dissolution, may wish to consider issuing a protective claim whilst a restoration application is pending. Of course, query how directors can act on behalf of a dissolved company, but the answer probably lies also in the statutory fiction. A similar problem arises in the context of estate claims brought by administrators. The so-called incurable nullity problem arises because an administrator of an estate of a deceased person has no authority to litigate on behalf of that estate prior to the issuing of a grant of letters of administration. What happens then if a potential administrator commences proceedings in the name of the estate prior to obtaining such a grant? Just to interrupt James to make clear that this problem doesn't plague executors as they derive their authority to litigate from the will and not from a grant of probate, the latter merely confirms their authority to act. The leading case on this point in the context of estates is the case of Milburn, Snell and Evans. The Court of Appeal held there that the commencement of proceedings as a personal representative without first obtaining a grant of representation is an incurable nullity. Such a claim is born dead, so to speak, and is incapable of being revived. The justification for this position appears to be that the status of administrator cannot be obtained subsequently with retrospective effect. Milburn has been applied repeatedly in the Court of Appeal since, but fits awkwardly with other more liberal approaches to amendments to plead title to sue, which have been adopted in the commercial context. In that vein, the Court of Appeal decision in Maradive and CNA Insurance is often cited as authority for the proposition that it is open to a party to rely on causes of action which accrue after commencement of proceedings, and that there is no procedural bar on amendment for that purpose. In that particular case, the claimant did not have a cause of action at all as at the date of issue of the proceedings. Nevertheless, the court found that there was no absolute rule of law or practice which precluded an amendment to rely on a cause of action which had arisen after the commencement of the proceedings in circumstances where, but for that amendment, the claim would fail. Given then this divergence of authority, private client practitioners acting on behalf of administrators should continue to consider obtaining a grant a prerequisite to issuing proceedings in the name of the estate. Moving on to our final point, a defendant who is aware that a claim has been issued against them but who has not yet been served is not entirely without remedy. 
CPR Rule 7.7 .7 provides that a defendant can serve a notice on a claimant requiring them to either serve the claim form or discontinue the claim within a specified period of not less than 14 days after service of the notice. If the claimant then doesn't comply with that notice, the defendant can make an application to the court for the claim to be dismissed. Perhaps not unsurprisingly, I've never come across this procedure being used. Defenders presumably prefer to sit and wait out the expiry of the four-month period, rather than alerting a claimant to the possibility of saving themselves and serving the claim form in time. Since you've mentioned discontinuance, Jessica, let's look quickly at the relevant provisions. A claimant has a right to discontinue all or part of a claim at any time. That's subject to certain limited circumstances where the court's permission may be required, most commonly where interim remedies have been awarded. The procedure to effect discontinuance is simple. A notice of discontinuance must be filed and served. Discontinuance takes effect upon service of that notice, save for proceedings with regards to costs. Unless the court orders otherwise, upon discontinuance, the claimant is liable for any costs incurred by the defendant on or before the date on which the notice was served. One question which arises is what a claimant who decides they do not wish to continue proceedings but who has not yet served the claim form should do. The options are to simply let things lie such that the claim form will become a nullity after the deadline for service or they could serve a notice of discontinuance. The former seems to us to be the more attractive option since it avoids the automatic imposition of a cost liability. However, one thing to bear in mind is that whilst avoiding discontinuing may avoid an automatic cost liability, there is still provision for the court to award costs to a defendant where they've incurred costs after proceedings have been issued but before they've been served. So it's not an entirely safe game to sit on issued proceedings without serving them. A claimant who discontinues proceedings may make an application to the court for an alternative costs order, but Generally, they must show some form of unreasonable conduct on the part of the defendant, which would justify a departure from the general rule. Thank you, James. Very interesting, and hopefully we have done our bit to limit the number of claims going through the courts, uh, which are concerned with issues of defective service. That's all we have to say for this episode, but we hope we've been of service. Goodbye. <laughs>